And that was really when it started for me. And when I came out of the lab, having done some exploration of John's work and done some meditation at that point, it was, if you can believe it, cassette tapes. I had cassette (laughs) tapes that John had given me, kindly had given me. And I came out of the lab a completely different person. I actually was having fun being a surgical resident. I was tired. You know, I can't say I didn't have a bad day, Mm -hmm. but I laughed with my colleagues. I had a great time. And I will share with you, Jill, that many, many people, including my superiors and my residency director, noticed a huge change. Hello, and thank you so much for joining us on Doc Working, the whole physician podcast. And I am really excited today to be joined by somebody you're going to love hearing from. It's Dr. Antonia Stevens from MGH Harvard in Boston. She is a surgeon specializing in thyroid surgery. She's also the head of wellness for surgeons at MGH and a professor at Harvard as well. And Antonia goes by Apple. That's who I know her as. And we're so glad you're here with us today, Apple. And we're going to be talking about meditation and mindfulness specifically for physicians. So why did you come to be interested in meditation and mindfulness as it relates to your work and life? Start us back at the beginning. When did you first become interested in this? So like many things, I had exposure to the concept of meditation and mindfulness really as a kid. I grew up next door to Dr. John Kabat-Zinn, who really is one of the modern fathers of mindfulness and who was instrumental in bringing mindfulness and meditation practices to Western culture. But the exposure was really very much as much exposure as as a kid. I kind of knew it was there. I sort of knew what he did, but not really. But I, I was aware of it and it was there. And there were a couple of books around the house. But I would say that the moment that really kind of grabbed me for the first time was when I was a teenager and I happened to be a rower. I rode in college and I was outside our house one day and John was leaving for the airport. And um, I asked him where he was going. And he said, well, I'm going to work with the men's U.S. Olympic rowing team. And of course, that was fascinating to me because I had to assume that if the men's Olympic rowing team was hiring John, was paying John and flying John, I think at the time he was going out to California, that John was going to make them go faster, that he was going to make them perform better and, you know, make them win. That's why usually Olympic rowing teams hire people. And so that was interesting to me because, you know, I sort of in the past had seen John as sort of a psychologist, which he's not, a therapist maybe, which he's not. And so this sort of aspect of performance, uh, focus and achievement tied into what he was doing, which was mindfulness and meditation was really what grabbed me to begin with. Yeah. And so for those who aren't familiar with John Kabat-Zinn, he is a a physician himself and has really committed his life to meditation and mindfulness and researching it. So putting some science behind what he knew to experience as the benefits of it a little bit. So for those who aren't familiar as much with his work, can you give us just a little bit of a thumbnail about uh, who he is and what he does? Absolutely. So he's a PhD, uh, very minor correction. He's not a physician, but a PhD. He was actually a molecular biology, I think a graduate student or was working on his PhD at MIT and heard some lectures on mindfulness and meditation and was really fascinated with this. And what John did is that he looked at this technique and he was interested in it. And he started working initially with patients at UMass Medical Center and patients with medical issues, hypertension, some mental health issues like anxiety and depression. 
And he founded something called the MBSR Clinic, which was really the first of that kind in the United States, which is mindfulness-based stress reduction. And he demonstrated that with these classes and with this center, which I recently read was actually in a basement at UMass, started in a basement, he was able to demonstrate that these patients had improvements, you know, were able to stop medications, had, you know, subjective improvement and objective improvement. And as you mentioned, he actually published, studied, and wrote about this. Mm-hmm. And that was really one of the hooks that got Western culture into his techniques. Mm-hmm. Now, those were patients. Those were people having problems. They were ill in some way or struggling. And it was not a big mental leap to take this to people who were sort of regular people trying to achieve things, struggling through life, through their days and their jobs and their families. And that was really where the performance and achievement aspect came in. So people started working with John who were just you know, regular people who wanted to feel better, who wanted to do better, and who wanted something in their life to be better. And this was a technique that became very popularized with that. And so then for you specifically, talk a little bit about how you as a practicing surgeon with a, you know, what some would call, I think, a challenging subspecialty, you're doing this work and you know about this meditation and mindfulness stuff and that it might help you be a better rower. But when did you start to realize that, hey, there may be a place for this in my life as a surgeon and that some of these benefits that we're seeing for patients may actually benefit me as well? Walk us through that kind of awakening you had there. So when I was a kid and sort of was introduced to this idea, I really actually didn't do any meditation or mindfulness and didn't really even know anything at all about it. And it really was when I was a resident in my first few years of residency. And when I did my surgical residency, it was fairly traditional to do in my program, three years of clinical work. And then many, if not most of us would take a year or two in the lab and then come back and finish residency clinically. As you might expect, the clinical years were extremely busy, stressful, lots and lots of sleep deprivation, physical and mental stress. And I started residency. And I think what really brought me to the point where I needed something, and I thought something could be better, was that prior to starting surgical residency, I was always trying to get the next thing. And I mean, for many of us, it starts as far back as fifth or sixth grade, when they start handing out grades and, you know, you want to get the A and you want to be in the hardest class. And then, you know, you go through middle school and high school and you're still trying to get the A and then you're trying to get the score on the SAT or, you know, the AP exam. And then you're trying to get the admission letter. And then, you know, you're in college and then you're thinking about getting admitted to medical school and you're taking the MCAT and just feels like there's one score, one acceptance letter, one more thing to do. And I pretty much landed in residency feeling really burned out. And I think it was a lot from that. I think we spend very little time in that process examining why we're doing things. Mm -hmm. What do we love about the idea of being a surgeon or a doctor? Mm -hmm. What do we love about the idea of going to medical school? If anybody had ever asked me those questions, I would have had absolutely no idea how to answer them. Mm -hmm. And I think it was really my first few years of residency where they needed to be answered. You know, if I'm going to be sleep deprived, if I'm going to work this hard, if I'm going to get up in the middle of the night, what's my purpose? What's my passion? 
And I don't think that we had ever, or I had ever had an opportunity to explore that. I think that can come naturally to some people, depending on who they are in terms of their personality, in terms of what environment they're in and who they spend time with and explore these things with. But for many, if not most of us, it's all about the measuring stick, getting to the next thing. And I think that I found myself in a place where I really needed to examine that. So I tried some therapy, which I think is great. I think therapy is great. But as a surgical resident, the time commitment, the days and hours that therapists work and the expense was just not not really a very feasible in terms of any sort of long-term plan. And so I thought, you know, I'm going to check out John's book. And I picked up the book and started reading. And that was really when it started for me. And when I came out of the lab, having done some exploration of John's work and done some meditation at that point, it was, if you can believe it, cassette tapes. I had cassette <laughs> tapes that John had given me, kindly had given me. And I came out of the lab a completely different person. I actually was having fun being a surgical resident. I was tired. You know, I can't say I didn't have a bad day, mm -hmm. but I laughed with my colleagues. I had wow. a great time. And I will share with you, Jill, that many, many people, including my superiors and my residency director, noticed a huge change. Yeah. So I love the story that I've heard you tell about how you notice it impacts you in surgery, uh, for lack of a better term, way that you react or the reactionism of just the normal thing. So tell us a little bit about like the difference for you between, let's say, Apple's regular brain and Apple's brain after she has been practicing mindfulness and meditation. What's the outcome that you notice and how it impacts your work now as a busy surgeon doing the work that you do? So I, I like to tell people that the days that I don't, I usually meditate in the morning for about 10 minutes, just as I wake up. And I like to tell people that when I don't do it, and many times I don't do it, I feel a little bit like my brain is sort of a loose electron. When I've meditated, there's a pair, there's a stabilizing effect on that loose electron. And all throughout our days as physicians, and certainly as surgeons, we're being pulled more into that loose electron mode. We're asked to pay attention to many, many things at the same time. We are asked to do many, many different things, talk with patients, do surgery, teach, write papers, run meetings, talk to families. And we're asked some of those all in one day. And certainly as an academic surgeon, all of those in one week or one month. And we're not only asked to do all those different things, but we're asked to pivot very quickly. Um, between those things. So one might expect that that can have an effect on your brain in terms of how it works. And some of the terms that I've heard used that ring true, and many of these terms have been used by surgeons other than me, is the runaway train mind or the monkey mind. Mm -hmm. And the monkey mind and the runaway train mind, I think, has the biggest impact in how we react to people and how we react to certain situations that we're faced with, many of which are challenging and sometimes or often confrontational. And one of the stories I'll tell, because I think it really helps to come down to exactly what has happened and how it feels is as a surgeon, you work with anesthesiologists. And when you're working with anesthesiologists, you do sometimes feel like your goals are not aligned. And you know, you may feel that they're, you know, delaying your case or doing something that might be at odds with what you would like or expect. And I think what I was able to do from meditating regularly was this concept of actually thinking a little bit more carefully about where the other person was coming from. 
before reacting in a way that would number one, you know, impact a relationship with a colleague, um, possibly change the mood of the operating room in a negative way. And in extreme situations, even impact patient outcomes. And I realized that my interpretation of where they were coming from and how I was reacting to it could have an impact on all of those things. And that those things were very meaningful to me, very important to me. So being able to sort of reflect in a difficult moment is a really challenging thing to do. And practicing that aspect of your brain when it's quiet and the stakes are low is really what was able to bring me to a point when I was challenged or feeling challenged that I could react differently than I had in the past. You talked about in surgery, having experiences of just feeling less irritated and being able to stay at a more steady rate of things that are commonly irritating (laughs) to surgeons in terms of things that are supposed to be happening that aren't always happening the way that you want them to. And I could see when I saw you express that to a group of surgeons, I could see people really relating to that. Like, oh, they really perked up when they're like, oh yeah, that stuff really annoys me. If there's a way that I can sort of train my brain to be able to not get in that space, that's really meaningful. Yeah. So I think that over the course of your day, and we're talking about doing surgery and being a surgeon, Mm -hmm. but there are obviously many other professions or even home life that can do this to you. There are a million little things that, you know, could irritate us, Mm -hmm. could feel like, threatening to us. And every time I feel like you get irritated in that way, it drains a little bit more of your energy. Mm -hmm. And we have important things to do as surgeons, obviously, right? We have important things to do in many aspects of our lives, but certainly as surgeons, we want to conserve that energy and we want to focus that energy towards doing all those things I listed, you know, doing Mm -hmm. surgery, taking care of patients, writing papers, teaching, talking to families, and If there's this constant drain on your energy from reacting from these tiny little irritations all day, that's going to have an impact on how those other things are going to go for you. And the example that I used in the instance you're describing is that I often at the end of a surgery would be asked multiple times how this specimen that we've removed was oriented. And I certainly acknowledge that how a specimen is oriented that's going to the pathology lab is an incredibly important thing. That's not in question. So being casual about it is certainly not an option but it would sort of feel like it was somewhat excessive to me. And I remember the time after sort of engaging in a more sort of regular meditation practice when I was asked multiple times at the end of a long and hard day, and I all of a sudden didn't feel irritated. And I noticed that I was being asked multiple times and I noticed that I wasn't feeling irritated. And it was a really, really, really good feeling because I wasn't putting negative energy towards something that really was actually quite important. And it was really well serving to everybody in the room. So that was a great feeling. And when you get that great feeling as a feedback for having done this practice, you're going to keep doing it. You're more likely to keep doing it. Yeah. I love that. One of the other surgeons that I work with in a coaching relationship had started based on your information that I had learned from you. And I was sharing with them in a coaching relationship and came back and said, I'm so much less irritated with some of the other people in the room. And it it just feels great. It helps make decisions. And so I, I just love the way that you share that story. Well, Dr. Antonia Apple-Steven, thank you so much for taking the time to share your journey of how you are sort of living and embodying the data and the research that Dr. John Kabat-Zinn has shared with all of us of how meditation and mindfulness can help us and help physicians do their job better and feel better about it and perform better. 
Thank you so much for being here. And everyone, thank you so much for tuning in. And we will see you next time. Hello, and thank you for listening. This is Amanda Taran. I'm the producer of the Doc Working Podcast. If you enjoyed our podcast, please like and subscribe. We would also love it if you checked out our website, which is docworking.com. And you can also find us on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, and on Instagram. On Instagram, we are docworking1, and that is with the number 1. When you check us out on social, please let us know what you would like to hear on the podcast. Your feedback really means a lot to us. And if you're a physician with a story you'd like to tell, please reach out to me at amanda at docworking.com to apply to be on the podcast. Thank you again, and we look forward to talking with you on the next episode of Doc Working, the Whole Physician Podcast.